0: Greetings and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and thanks for tuning in. It's good to be back after taking a couple of weeks off and while we've been away, it's been a busy and eventful month in the world and in the world of business. This is a fun and informative episode. We've got a great mystery brand of the day, so stay tuned for that. Major League Baseball is back and we've got the NBA and the NHL hopefully coming back this week. COVID-19 is also back, or really it hasn't gone anywhere and has only gotten worse. Baseball games are already getting canceled due to players and coaches contracting the virus. And many of us are now preparing for what the new, new normal is going to look like when our kids go, quote, back to school in a few weeks. So yeah, 2020 is continuing to be quite a year for the history books. Speaking of which, the COVID-19 Corporate Memory Project, which History Factory launched back in May, has amassed over 700 assets archiving how companies and brands are responding to the pandemic, like Walmart's recent decision to require all shoppers to wear masks in their stores, and Walmart and Amazon's actions on hero pay for frontline workers, or how Starbucks has announced the closing of some stores and is pivoting to more of a takeout model, So if you're interested in adding content to the archive or if you want to bookmark a resource where you can keep track of how corporate America is responding to the crisis of our time, go to www.c19corporatememory.org. Meanwhile, also on the business front, hundreds of companies of all sizes have suspended or reduced their ad spending on Facebook as part of a boycott with respect to how the company has handled hate speech and discrimination on its platform. In a little bit, we're going to talk with Professor Maurice Schweitzer from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School about the boycott and the history of other business boycotts. Also, in the past month, Berkshire Hathaway moved on its biggest deal in about four years buying the natural gas transmission and storage assets of Dominion Energy, which was almost a $10 billion acquisition, including the debt. And also, in keeping with the decisions and actions of many companies and brands this summer, Disney, which reopened Disney World in Florida last week, although Disneyland in California remains closed, Disney announced a few weeks back that it is, quote, completely reimagining Splash Mountain, its ride that is based on the controversial 1946 film, The Song of the South. The ride, which has been a mainstay for over 30 years at both Disneyland and Disney World, will be rethemed around the 2009 film, The Princess and the Frog, which starred Disney's first black princess, Princess Tiana. So, congrats to Princess Tiana and her native New Orleans, both of which I'm a pretty big fan of. My daughter and I loved that movie, and uh, my family's also a fan of the Splash Mountain ride, notwithstanding the uncomfortable iconography. So, it's great to see it being redone in a way that Disney says will be more inclusive and one would hope have some great Louisiana music. But... The big story of the last few weeks, the one that really jumped out to us and screamed mystery brand of the day was the announcement that this restaurant brand to be revealed later in this episode was launching a new mascot. This mascot's name is Dolly and it comes with its own product, a new chicken sandwich. Dolly was originally a fictional character that was an old friend of this restaurant brand's namesake. Dolly made her debut in the 1950s in a comic book series, the restaurant published for about 50 years. So for those of you who are longtime listeners here on History Factory Plugged In, you know that we enjoy talking about the history of comics, and we love a good chicken sandwich. And even better yet, we love ridiculous food marketing, especially if it entails chicken or better yet, a chicken sandwich. Marvel, DC Comics, Chick-fil-A, KFC, and of course, Popeyes. They've all been subjects of our fascinations. So needless to say, Dolly caught our eye. It takes a special kind of marketer to create the hashtag Big Cluckin' Deal. So we'll get back to you in a little bit to talk more about Dolly and reveal this mystery restaurant brand. But next, we're going to dig in a little deeper into the Facebook boycott driven by the Stop Hate for Profit movement and some of the history of other boycotts. And to do that, we got some help from our new friend, Professor Maurice Schweitzer. Professor Schweitzer is the Cecilia Yen-Ku Professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on emotions and the negotiation process. He is the past president of the International Association for Conflict Management, the author of more than 70 articles, and the co-author of the recent book, Friend and Foe, when to cooperate, when to compete, and how to succeed at both. Professor Schweitzer, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, well, let's first start uh, before talking specifically about uh, Facebook. Let's talk a little bit about um, the history of, of business-related boycotts, which is a topic that you've, uh, you've studied And um, I I guess the first question is, how successful uh, do these boycotts tend to be? Yeah, so the history
1: of boycotts goes back a very long time, um, hundreds of years. And ironically, boycotts tend to gather a lot of attention, but they tend not to be very successful. That is, they tend not to be very successful in changing a target company's behavior most boycotts fail because basically they fail to attract a broad enough coalition and they tend to lack the persistence that's really needed because customers almost invariably go back to familiar or comfortable habits.
0: Yeah. People, are, people tend to be lazy over the long time. It's hard to, hard to change behavior for, for the long haul. Um, what, what, what have been some of the more notable, uh, examples of boycotts? And, uh, have there been some that have been, um, unusually successful or, or maybe conversely spectacularly failed? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's far
1: easier to point to the failures. So failures like, like even after British Petroleum had that spectacular oil spill, there were 20,000 people that signed a public citizen's petition vowing to boycott BP. Um, and yet, very little long-term economic damage happened to BP from the boycott. They didn't have to materially change very much. Um, and you, you ended up, even though there was a lot of enthusiasm around it at the beginning, um, it really failing to you know, deliver much in the way of substantive change. Um, I mean, you've had I mean, there's like so many boycotts. I mean, in 2017, conservatives were calling to boycott Starbucks. Um, The CEO then, Howard Schultz, had announced he was planning to hire 10,000 refugees worldwide over five years in response to Trump's um, stance about refugees. Um, But, you know, sort of didn't really do very much at all. Now, there are cases where, for example, SeaWorld in San Diego, California, uh they they suffered they were the target of boycotts and they did end their orca breeding program they sort of changed uh, their very large animal programming so you f- you, you do find cases like that um, and they exist um the but, but but sometimes you have boycotts that actually um fail and uh finch knitting and sewing actually in leesburg virginia sort of not far outside of dc uh there was a trump uh supporter that sort of threatened to boycott them Mm -hmm. um and and it actually had this reverse impact it actually boosted sales Mm -hmm. um where where what you find is that uh, if we were to distinguish between one-sided and two-sided boycotts. So, for example, SeaWorld, you know, nobody's really in favor of captivity of these large animals. Or BP, nobody's really in favor of oil spills. but But in a very polarized political environment, if people are taking one side, somebody else might take the other side. So for example, uh, Goya products, the CEO of Goya recently endorsed president Trump, uh, and Trump sort of, you know, warmly embraced Goya products There's a picture of him in the oval office with Goya products. Uh, and so there's some calls to boycott Goya, but then you have, uh, supporters of president Trump, you know, rushing out, uh, you know, fill their pantries. So so those two-sided boycotts can often end up having the sort of uh this sort of reverse effect.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I would think Chick-fil-A is also a notable example of that.
1: Yes, exactly right. So Chick-fil-A is a great example of it. I mean the if you, if you think about like classic success stories, like like Cesar Chavez boycotting uh grapes in California in 1965. Um This is the classic boycott. It took five years where there were basically agricultural workers that were trying to improve working conditions and pay. It took years for people boycotting. So it's like persistence, and it had to go beyond their 2,000 workers to sort of go out and become mainstream to affect change. And And so that did work. Uh, but, but that's really the exception, um, to the, sort of general rule.
0: Yeah. And ha- it, have there been changes to how companies or brands have been boycotted over, uh, over the years? Have there been sort of evolutions in the strategies and tactics, especially now, obviously with all the technology tools that we have?
1: Yeah. So, so more recently, so, so I think there, there's two things that have changed. One is technology. Uh, so for example, Grab Your Wallet uh, is a site where you can actually, you know, look at, depending on your sort of orientation here, um, you can look at a list of companies to boycott.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so
1: technology has in some ways facilitated identifying sort of where to boycott. Um, at the same time, our the sort of the current tenor in DC uh, has become very polarizing. Yeah. Uh, and we have a current president an administration that runs businesses. Um, so for example, uh, his daughter Ivanka sort of selling products. So should Ivanka who works in administration is daughter, the president be promoting products. I mentioned sort of Goya products just a minute ago. Uh, so we have, this sort of, you know, marriage between politics and business that's also increased a call for, for boycotts. But I think part of the problem, you know, problem in terms of the effectiveness of boycotts is that, first of all, these are almost all two-sided boycotts. Mm-hmm. So if people are, are boycotting Ivanka's dresses, other people are going out to go buy them. Um, and second, uh, Grab Your Wallet um, has listed so many companies um, that it becomes overwhelming. That is, as I mentioned before, it's, it's hard for people, if it's hard for people to boycott one gas station, you can imagine how hard it is for people to boycott 38 or 50 companies. Um, you're asking people to really change their lives. And at some point, people are like, look, yeah, I care about this cause, but the news cycle moves on. And, you know, like, like in the moment, we think that we're so caught up in it. And people, I mean, I, I've, I've given interviews over the years where people are like, well, no, this moment in time feels different. Yeah. So if you remember, like, you know, like the Parkland shooting, yeah. it was like, oh, this moment feels different and Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart, like all these places that sell guns and ammunition. And sometimes people make changes, but we still haven't seen meaningful, you know, sort of reform in the way that people in that moment felt like we were on the cusp of it happening.
0: Yeah. And oftentimes to, to your point specifically, as it pertains to obviously, uh, 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 gun, gun laws, uh, it, it often feels like the strategy on the part of the, the company or the brand is just to ride this out, right? And And, That's and, right. and to your point about sort of the the, the efficacy um, requiring that broad coalition and that sort of long-term discipline, there's a sense of we can if we just can ride this out, um, the headlines will move on. You know, consumers will move on and uh, and will be okay. So, when when boycotts are effective, I mean, obviously, I would think there's there's, uh, you know, on the on the face of it, there's what people probably would immediately think of, which is obviously the revenue implications of a company's product no longer being bought. But I would think that maybe a, a, a more damaging or as damaging um effect of a boycott over time could be with respect to reputation um when boycotts are effective do you find that it's one or the other that ultimately is the tipping point for the company is it really typically a a top and bottom line issue that's forcing them to to change or is it more of a recognition that the harm to, you know, the brand or to reputation or just a sense that they're on the wrong side of history. Um, what, what What's that balance of kind of what, what drives an organization to change as a result of a boycott?
1: Yeah. So I think, I think that point's really important that, that often what really is biting for these companies, companies that are very sensitive to their image, sort of PR sensitive companies those are the companies that are most sensitive most likely to be damaged or reactive to a boycott they just don't want that negative publicity and for and for, for many of those companies that's what's going to be the trigger is they don't like the headlines they want to change that story as opposed to many companies so so facebook most recently sort of adopting at least initially the, the idea of like, Hey, let's try to ride this out. Companies are going to come calling because they really need our platform for advertising. Um, And Facebook has an incredibly powerful platform where they can really match people to advertisements in a way that other platforms cannot. And they're less sensitive to that, to those PR concerns. But but other organizations, you know, very very PR sensitive ones, they are they are going to be most likely to quickly make a change when
0: there's a call for boycott. Yeah, and and so let's talk about Facebook for a minute. So um, my understanding is certainly from a from a financial perspective that the. You know that the advertising boycott is 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 not not going to bring Facebook to its knees. It's a even with these hundreds and hundreds of high profile uh, companies that are that have participated in the boycott and the many many small businesses that obviously aren't in the news but are also doing so. That you know these are in in the scheme of things, you know tiny numbers in the context of, uh, you know, Facebook's $70 billion of annual revenue and it having, you know, I think its profitability is like $18 billion. So it certainly doesn't seem like like this is going to be a a financial blow to Facebook, uh, certainly in the near term. Um, But how would you compare the boycott with Facebook uh, with others? And to your point of you know this one feels different um, does 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 this one feel different, or do you expect that this will ultimately um, be very similar to the algorithm that we see with most boycotts ultimately not being successful?
1: yeah, so I think uh, you know this is sort of a frustrating answer, perhaps, but i 'd say both on the one hand, I think we are breaking new ground there's something there 's something groundbreaking about this boycott of Facebook in that it really is a large-scale business-to-business boycott. So almost every example that we talked about so far was really a consumer-to-company boycott. So people aren't buying grapes, or people are boycotting tuna because the nets are catching dolphins, or people are boycotting a gas company, or boycotting Disney because they don't like the way a movie depicted... Uh, relationship. Um, those are consumers trying to boycott a company. And the problem there is that consumers have to make sustained change and they've got to be of a, a broad coalition that sticks with it. And that's typically not what happens. Why I think it's different when we see businesses boycotting another business is that businesses can really flip a switch on and off and have much greater self-control and control over a much larger volume of spending. So so that's why it's different. And that's that's why even though Facebook hasn't seen a dramatic drop in revenue, it's possible. I mean, we've seen hundreds of companies sign on, at least commit to a vol- you know, sort of a short-term boycott, and and those hundreds of companies, it's you know sort of think about like a hundred people or hundreds of people, you know it's it's much easier to get a hundred companies on board than it is to get a hundred companies to sort of sorry hundred individuals or thousands of individuals to actually do things. So so I think I think on the one hand the business to business side is different. On the other side, just to your point, Facebook is such a juggernaut. They are incredibly powerful and they have this secret sauce where they can really direct people to ads in a way that, you know, right now um, is incredibly attractive to people. That is, if, if you're a company and you wanna broadcast your movie or your product. Facebook is an incredibly attractive platform, even in the
0: midst of all the negative publicity they're getting. Yeah. So having said that, um, what would you consider a win uh, for the consortium of organizations that have led this uh, stop hate for profit movement? So Perhaps and they already won.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, yes, yeah, so it's, it's funny because I was about to say that. But on the one hand, it, it depends how high we want to raise the bar. I think they've already achieved something quite notable. We're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, we have people thinking about it, listening to it, and it makes Facebook more vulnerable. And so the next time there's a call for a boycott, there's a groove here that companies and organizations can sort of go down and and second they 've taken a hit where people recognize that you know this the content that they 're allowing to sort of spread on their platform is a problem and it 's changed the conversation both within Facebook and within the broader community so I think it 's had an effect you know of course, I think the the organizers would love for more they 'd they'd love for boycott they 'd love for Facebook to make. Really substantive changes, rather than the cosmetic changes that they're likely to at least offer at first.
0: Yeah, but to your point, in the near term, you know, uh, you know, companies and brands don't necessarily want the mindset of their their customers to be, "I hate it, but I can't live without it." <laughs> that's not. That's, that's not right. That's right.
1: That's right. That that's not where you want to be because. On the margin, people will switch. And if there's another competitor, yeah. you know, there's always the next thing. And yeah, you don't wanna have soft support.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, and you've mentioned uh, uh, Professor Schweitzer several times this notion of polarization. Um, and we're obviously living through a time in which it seems we're only becoming more polarized, more anxious, more angry. Um, and you've written about this topic, I believe, or been uh, focused, uh, had been included in some stories about this notion of range. And as the business sector continues to be uh, seemingly really leaning into uh, becoming a stronger um, force for causes, and um, and really you know taking a stand on on moral issues more than we've seen at least in the recent past, how do you see companies sort of navigating this? landmine of rage, where to your point, every boycott triggers a reverse boycott. I mean, are we headed into a place where we're going to have like blue companies and red companies? Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. This sort of this blue red company,
1: you know, maybe, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's super interesting because we've seen companies, I mentioned Starbucks before. So Starbucks. In 2015, they had their Race Together initiative that, you know, starting a conversation about race, which didn't go well. But um, then their 2017 commitment to hire hiring 10,000 refugees, um, where Starbucks has become associated with a more liberal mindset and conservatives have called to boycott Starbucks. Now, Starbucks sells expensive coffee mostly in urban areas so in cities like la and new york there are many people that are gonna pay a lot of money for coffee and and it's become you know a sort of a a bluer kind of company you know sort of founded in you know sort of the the northeast so so the north north northwest um paypal um also, for example, they pulled the facility out of North Carolina when North Carolina in 2016 had their bathroom bill, this sort yeah. of anti-trans legislation, as it was perceived, and and PayPal. If you sort of think about these companies, so uh, what is PayPal? Well, it's a high-tech company. High-tech companies really need these highly educated uh, immigrant populations. All the tech companies skew liberal because those are very highly educated uh, tech workers are an important constituent for them. That is, they need those people. And those people tend to be more urban and liberal. And so I think many companies are trying to find their voice in a way that is not only consistent with their customers, but also consistent with the workforce that they have, uh, that, that is really sort of essential for their competitive success.
0: Yeah. And indeed that can be challenging, especially there are many companies where there is a juxtaposition between the kind of talent they need to deliver their products and the customers who they serve. um, right. Which, uh, which I've, I've, uh, had the opportunity to learn about in some events I've attended. Um, Last question for you. you, So do you see any sort of historical parallels uh, or is this really sort of unprecedented in terms of this era that we're in where there's all these different kind of, you know, landmines of, of the cultural war, so to speak?
1: Well, you know, I think it's easy for us to just sort of go back, you know, 40, 50 years and say, Oh, this is unusually polarized. And it is, I mean, In our lifetimes, this is the most polarized we've been. But I think historically, the U.S. has had this kind of polarization. What is different is the technology. So the the technology that allows people, we talked about Facebook, we can now connect. We can share stories that are true or aren't true. We have echo chambers where we might share the same kinds of news and never see very different opinions. And so I think what is different is that we can have this polarization and really the a very loud echo chamber. We see a lot of news consistent with our existing viewpoints. And I think that's quite bad for sort of our, our broader sort of country. Um, but it also I think spells this sort of divisiveness that, that, that will increase, I think, the calls for boycotts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It it, 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 also reminds me that, uh, I, I had a conversation with, uh, Cheryl Battles, who's a diversity leader who, um, uh, is with, uh, a company hitting and bows and we were talking, um, uh, right around Memorial Day, uh, and one of the things that she, a really interesting insight that she made that resonated with me, that kind of uh, uh, kind of is relevant to this discussion, is how. Our workplaces have now become one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse place in our lives, right? Uh, we don't necessarily live in diverse neighborhoods or go to uh, diverse places of, of worship and the workplace. And and now I think the role of business to be one of the forces to help offset, you know, this sense of polarization um, can really be uh an important element of the of the, the role businesses can play in sort of breaking down some of those barriers.
1: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, and I, th- and I think we're also at a moment in time where, where CEOs executives are stepping into that role. Yeah. And. Totally. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you think about like like uh, Juneteenth, sort of the celebration when slaves in Galveston, Texas, became aware of their freedom. It's companies that have started to mark that holiday to give people time off or paid time and a half. And, and what's so interesting, I mean, it's like companies across the spectrum from JCPenney to Target to Amazon to Nike, all these companies marking a holiday that, that may become a national holiday, not because the government led, but because the government followed corporate leadership
0: yeah yeah really interesting yeah cool well listen thank you so much for the conversation really interesting insights uh and uh appreciate the conversation and uh hope to have you again sometime oh thanks for having me thanks to professor schweitzer for those great insights and it's going to be interesting to see how things play out for facebook in the coming weeks and months Um, But without further ado, let's segue back to chicken sandwiches and Dolly and our mystery brand of the day. And as I said before, this restaurant brand launched a new chicken sandwich called The Dolly. A spokesperson for the brand said, quote, it is Dolly's time to shine now with our chicken sandwich. So she's taking the forefront right now. She's in charge. So who is this mystery brand, you may wonder? Well, Dolly is an old friend of no other than Big Boy. That's right, the Big Boy in the red checkered overalls. As reported in Food and Wine, and I quote, Big Boy is one of those rare chains where the mascot may be better known than the restaurants itself. Even if you've never eaten at one of Big Boy's 70-plus U.S. locations, you've almost certainly seen the checker-clad kid who's been the face of the company since it was founded in the 1930s. But after all those years, Big Boy is finally getting a break. The chain announced that starting today, though the name will still be Big Boy, the company's mascot will be a little girl, Dolly. Rest assured that no, Big Boy has not done anything wrong or been canceled for bad behavior. Rather, the switch to a female face is a pre-planned promotional move tied to an on-trend new menu item. According to Wikipedia, which, to be fair, is the source Big Boy references on their own website, Dolly was originally introduced in the adventures of the Big Boy comic book series as Big Boy's girlfriend. Frankly, Big Boy never struck me as boyfriend material, but hey, I didn't know the guy personally. Regardless, in an effort to compete in the ongoing Popeye's Chicken Sandwich Wars, Big Boy decided a big move was in order. For now indeed, Dolly is featured front and center as the company's new mascot online, but whether this is a permanent change or just a promotional stunt isn't entirely clear." End quote. And speaking of not entirely clear, it's not totally clear how Big Boy and Dolly are really getting along in this new brand structure. Uh, While it's been reported that Dolly is the new mascot, the name is still Big Boy, as is the visual identity on the website. And meanwhile, it doesn't sound like everyone inside the Big Boy family is clear or thrilled about the change. Timeout LA reported that, quote, Dolly has already taken over the iconography across the chain's website and Instagram account, but not at Burbank's, which remains the oldest surviving Bob's Big Boy location. An employee at the Burbank outpost confirmed to Timeout LA that Dolly won't be bumping Big Boy out of the limelight here, despite local reports indicating she will. In fact, Bob's Big Boy Burbank, which maintains its own website and social media presence, hasn't acknowledged Dolly at all. Similarly, the Downey location in California is staying the course with Big Boy. We're participating in the promotion for the sandwich, but we're not doing any mascot changes, a representative from the Downey restaurant told us. So I don't know, we may yet have another protest movement on our hands here in 2020 as Big Boy struggles with these complex issues of brand identity and expression. Um, So a little quick background, more background on uh, Big Boy. I didn't realize the restaurants are actually only in four states now, uh, which I don't think you would ever guess are California, Michigan, uh, where the brand is now based, Ohio, And North Dakota, Uh, California has five big boys, Ohio two, North Dakota only one, and Michigan has like 65. So that's obviously the big boy hotbed. And it is a franchise. So if you're interested in spreading the big boy magic, or as it were, the dolly magic, uh, you can maybe get in on on that action. And according to bigboy.com, back in 1936, a guy named Bob Weehan sold his beloved the Soto Roadster and opened a burger stand in Glendale, California called Bob's Pantry. So you can kind of understand why the rebrand to Big Boy was a good one. And here's a fun fact. Six months after opening Bob's Pantry, Bob created the first double-decker burger, which inspired the name Big Boy. So there you have it. Big Boy is the name of the first double-decker burger. So now you have the origin story both for a double-decker burger and Big Boy. You're welcome. Uh, Big Boy had its first franchises in the 1950s, which explains the big footprint in Michigan, incidentally. And then in 1956, the first edition of the aforementioned Adventures of the Big Boy comic was published. And get this, if you're skeptical of the comic book pedigree of Big Boy, it was produced by Timely Comics, which later became Marvel, and was written by Stan Lee and drawn by Bill Everett, Sol Brodsky, and Dan DiCarlo until 1961. So how about that? Big Boy has some comic book cred. The series ran until 1996, making it one of the longest running comics in American history. There were 466 issues of the comic book, many with over 1 million printed copies with stories featuring Big Boy, his friend Dolly, and his dog Nugget. In addition, of course, to fun games and puzzles kids could play while waiting for their burgers. So there you have it. Congratulations and good luck to Big Boy and their new adventures with Dolly. We wish you well. And uh, all right, one last thing uh, before we head out. Also, I bet you didn't know that this month marks the 135th anniversary of the first patent given to an African-American woman. Sarah E. Good received a patent for inventing a folding bed. Sarah Good was born into slavery in 1850 in Ohio. She was freed at the end of the Civil War, moved to Chicago, where she married a carpenter and opened up a furniture store for working class customers. And according to her profile on the Berkshire Museum's website, quote, her customers would often complain that they had no room for furniture or storage spaces in their small apartments. In order to solve the problem, she created a prototype of the folding cabinet bed, which could be used to sleep at night and as a roll top desk during the day. So, occupants of small spaces who utilize folding beds for themselves or their guests have Sarah E. Good to thank. All right, that's our episode. Thanks again to Professor Maurice Schweitzer and the team at Big Boy for being part of our program today. Be well, keep taking care of one another, and we'll be back soon.